And whilst I thus discharge what I conceive to be my duty, I derive great pleasure from the reflection that I am supporting a measure calculated to impart additional strength to our happy union. Diversified as are the interests of its various parts, how admirably do they harmonize and blend together. We have only to make a proper use of the bounty spread before us to render us prosperous and powerful. Speaker of the House Henry Clay spoke these words on the floor of the House on January 22, 1812, arguing for an increase in the size of the U.S. Navy. And these words speak to the political philosophy that would guide Clay's path through war and peace for the remainder of his life. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Before we get into the second of our episodes on the life of Henry Clay, I wanted to share something about the podcast audio editor, Andrew Foncook. I think it was just after he had finished working on his first or second episode for the podcast, he sent me a picture of a shirt that a friend had given to him. On the shirt was printed, Don't Blame Me, I Voted for Clay. It was a retro campaign shirt from Clay's presidential run in 1844. Naturally, I replied with a picture of my Tippecanoe and Tyler 2 shirt and told him that it was fate that he ended up working on the Harrison podcast. The stories of Harrison and Clay are linked closely together, and we'll see some of that today as Harrison, Clay, and the rest of the nation heads into the War of 1812. I also wanted to mention that Andrew is available for non-Harrison-related audio projects. Should you need his help with your next audio project, his email is andrew at foncook. That's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. With that said, it's on with Clay. Maybe I can be your Henry Clay. I can be your Henry Clay. Maybe I can be your Henry Clay. When we last left off, Clay had been elected speaker on his first day in the House of Representatives. Longtime listeners to this program will remember that around this same time, or episode 16 for those of you who may have missed it, Harrison had led his forces in the Battle of Tippecanoe, which occurred on November 7, 1811. While not a battle directly related to the War of 1812, it was seen by folks like Clay as epitomizing some of their arguments for going to war with Great Britain. The British, from their outpost in Canada, were seen as agitating the native peoples of the Midwest region. Indeed, in the late 1700s, early 18-teens, there is evidence that they were doing just that, as relations between Britain and the U.S. deteriorated. The Battle of Tippecanoe not only inflamed Americans, who felt that the discovery of British guns in the native village of Prophetstown by Harrison's men after the battle proved the British to be stirring up trouble in the region, but it also drove Tecumseh and his followers firmly into the British camp. It also established Harrison's reputation, whether well-deserved based solely on this encounter or not, as an able military leader. Harrison's fame in the West would lead to his name being talked about in the halls of Washington, D.C. by Clay and others. However, the issues driving Clay and the Warhawks to clamor for conflict with Britain didn't stop in the West, but carried out to the high seas. Due to the near-constant decades of warfare between Britain and France, the British were driven to a policy of impressing American seamen into the British service. U.S. merchant ships and even U.S. naval vessels were boarded by British naval troops and, claiming that the seamen were deserters from the British service with little to no evidence, they would force the Americans into service. 
This violation of national sovereignty infuriated young men like Clay, who, having grown up only knowing the United States as a separate nation, had also inherited the revolutionary generation's animosity towards the British. Thus Clay, in one of his early speeches in the House after taking up the Speakership, while arguing for an expansion of the Army by 25,000 men, asserted while attacking opponents of the bill that, quote, We are called upon to submit to debasement, dishonor, and disgrace, to bow the neck to royal insolence. Let those who contend for this humiliating doctrine read its refutation in the history of nations. Let us come home to our own history. It is not by submission that our fathers achieved our independence. It is notable that President Madison had called for a smaller increase in the army, but when the bill came across his desk for the full 25000 that Clay had supported, he signed the measure. This would not be the last time that Madison would bow the neck, so to speak, to the Speaker of the House. Madison, in his capacity, was doing everything he could to avoid war. But neither the war hawks nor the British seemed to be doing much to aid him in achieving a peaceful resolution. As 1812 progressed, the talk of war in Congress continued. A Federalist from Massachusetts wrote in February that, quote, There is scarce a day but what we hear on the floor of the House, something said about the war in which we are about to engage, i.e., when we are ready to make a rapid descent upon Canada. As another embargo on Great Britain, as suggested by Clay to Secretary of State James Monroe, was being put into place in late March and early April, the other major event of 1812 was getting going, namely the presidential election of that year. Though Madison's renomination by the Republican Congressional Caucus was seen as a fait accompli, Remini also notes where it was made clear by the Warhawks in no uncertain terms that their unquestioned support for re-election was dependent on Madison's being willing to support war with Great Britain. However, Remini also notes that, by this point, it does seem that Madison was committed to that course of action. Though there was some sentiment in the party against Madison, it seems as if it had less to do with him personally than on the fact that, in the last 23 years of government under the Constitution, only four of those years had seen someone not from Virginia as chief executive, and that had been John Adams, who many, both in and outside of his party, had not cared for all that much. Within the party, there had been talk of Madison's vice president, George Clinton of New York. No, not the P-Funk George Clinton, though a time-traveling George Clinton as vice president would have been rather awesome. Anyway, George Clinton had also served as Jefferson's vice president and had been seen over the years as a possible alternative to yet another Virginian presidential term. However, Clinton died on April 20th. After Clinton's death, his nephew, Governor of New York DeWitt Clinton, was increasingly seen as a potential alternative candidate. Clinton's supporters had done what they could to find support within the Republican Party, even putting out feelers to Clay for a Clinton-Clay ticket, an idea which Clay quickly rejected. Despite these opposition efforts, on May 18th, the Republican Congressional Caucus renominated Madison with only one member, a Clinton supporter, abstaining from the vote. The New York Republican Legislative Caucus, however, defied the National Caucus, and on May 29th, 90 out of its 95 members nominated Clinton for president. Though he was still a Republican, following the Congressional Caucus, Clinton knew that he was unable to successfully challenge Madison without Federalist support. However, the Federalists were completely opposed to conflict with Britain, 
and Clinton's support within the Republican Party was based on his being able to prosecute the war with, quote, firm measures that would force England to the peace table. Clinton was not able to balance these two opposing forces and ended up losing to Madison with only 89 votes in the Electoral College, while Madison earned 128 electoral votes. The votes were sectional, as Clinton's support came from the states of the Northeast, with only the votes of Delaware and five of Maryland's 11 votes coming from below the Mason-Dixon line. Meanwhile, Madison's primary support came from the West and South, though he also did win Pennsylvania and Vermont. This sectional vote seemed to portend ill for the nation and its politicians, but by the time the votes were cast, the nation was at war, and its leaders had the prosecution of that conflict as their primary focus. Just a couple of items to point out that explain my reasoning for discussing the election of 1812 in this much detail. First, this was the first time that Clay was talked about being on the ticket, but he opted against it. One has to wonder, though, if this got him to thinking about what it would be like to be at the top of the ticket, or if that thought had already come to mind. Second, the fact that the Republican Congressional Caucus was so out of line with the will of the party in New York, which was the most populous state in the Union as of the 1810 census, reflects a key defect in the caucus nomination system that we'll see contribute towards the eventual end of the system three elections hence, an election that would find Clay running for the top seat. Back to the war, or the run-up, I should say. Clay kept Congress in session through April and May as the rhetoric heated up, culminating in news in late May that negotiations with France, which was also attacking American shipping interests, had come to naught, and that the British were continuing to dismiss American claims of being wronged, justifying their actions as necessary in order to prosecute the war against Napoleon. Henry Clay wrote on May 24th that, quote, The government is now in possession of a full view of our foreign relations and will be able to adopt the measure recommended by its best judgment. That, I'm still persuaded, will be war, whether against one or both the belligerents, the only point of which I find any diversity of opinion will be determined in the course of a few days. Clay didn't have long to wait. Madison sent over a special message to Congress asking for a declaration of war against Great Britain, and Clay and the rest of Congress worked quickly. Madison signed the declaration of war on June 18th. Madison biographer Ralph Ketchum wrote about the lead-up to the war, asserting that, quote, what Clay, Calhoun, and other war hawks did in 1811 and 1812 was not browbeat the president into war or give the impulse to it from their expansionist predilections but rather to provide the legislative leadership in Congress, the effective attention to preparedness, and the sharp propaganda sense needed to arouse the country. Still, it was a war that Madison really didn't want, but had been forced into by his fellow Republicans and the mood of the public, and it was a war for which the United States was sorely unprepared. I won't go into the details of the military aspects of the War of 1812 here, as that's beyond the scope of our focus on Henry Clay. However, I will note that, soon after the war was on, Clay was writing to Secretary of State Monroe suggesting William Henry Harrison be named as a Brigadier General. He asserted that, upon arriving home in Lexington, he heard reports of Harrison's recent visit to the city, and that Harrison, quote, was received with a cordiality and an attention which no public character ever before experienced in this country. No military man in the United States combines more general confidence in the Western country than he does. Everywhere, I've been asked, how come Harrison overlooked? 
Harrison fans know that Harrison himself would ask himself that question many times later in life. And one has to wonder what Henry Clay of 1840 would say to Henry Clay of 1812 were he to be over his shoulder when he was writing this letter to Monroe. I imagine it would be something along the lines of, shut up you fool, but I digress. Having helped to lead the nation into war, there was little for Clay to do now but support the administration and the war effort through legislation. Meanwhile, bad news flooded in time and again. As Robert Romney wrote, quote, Right from the start, the war was a disaster for the United States on every front. The war dragged on, with Harrison's leadership, once he was put in command, being one of the few bright points, a small vindication for Clay. However, Clay's largest contribution to the war effort would come at the beginning of 1814, when he, along with John Quincy Adams, James A. Bayard, Jonathan Russell, and Albert Gallatin, was named by Madison to negotiate with the British for peace. Clay resigned from the House on January 19th and made his way to New York City, setting sail on February 25th for Europe. The Western Star's trip east would not prove to be an easy one due to rough conditions on the North Atlantic and a less-than-stellar crew. But Clay and his fellow commissioner, Russell, would arrive in Gothenburg, Sweden, on April 13th and would attempt to contact their compatriots. Adams was to travel from Russia, where he had been serving as U.S. Minister to that nation, while Bayard and Gallatin were supposed to be in Amsterdam, but were, in fact, in London. In a pre-telephone or even telegraph age, it took a bit for the quintet to come together, but they coordinated between both themselves and the British commissioners to meet in Ghent, Belgium, and the Americans all finally arrived on July 7th, with Gallatin being the straggler. The instructions that had been given to the peace commissioners by Secretary of State Monroe had focused on the long-standing issues previously mentioned that had ultimately been worked up to be a casus belli, namely the impressment of American seamen, the blockade of shipping from neutral countries during the Napoleonic Wars, the British incitement of native peoples in the West to war with the United States, so on and so forth. Monroe also slipped into the instructions that they should push for the British to hand over Canada as their continued retention of those provinces would be, quote, a fruitful source of controversy in the future. Though Monroe was right, all the commissioners, even Clay didn't bother bringing it up, were cognizant of the reality of the situation enough to know that Canada was not on the table. Indeed, Clay was pessimistic about the negotiations as a whole, as he felt the U.S. was in such a weakened position that the British would insist on continuing the practice of impressment, something that Monroe had indicated and that Clay felt the American government would insist upon being a non-negotiable point. As Clay put it in a letter to William Crawford, quote, There is no midway point on which honor can rest between abandonment of the practice of impressment and total silence in relation to it. The first piece that had to be made, though, was between the commissioners themselves. If you can imagine it, the witty, fun-loving Clay quickly found himself butting heads with John Quincy Adams, who Clay biographer Robert Remini described within the commission as follows, quote, His, Adams's Puritan background, his dedication to duty and untiring work habits, his keen sense of his responsibilities and rights as head of the delegation, his intellectual zeal and gloomy outlook, all these and a lot more set a model that sharply contrasted and soon conflicted with attitudes, deportment, and general ideas of some of the other commissioners, most notably Henry Clay. Adams made little effort to establish a convivial atmosphere between himself and his colleagues. After dining together one time upon Gallatin's arrival, 
Quote, Adams resolved to take his meals alone, saying of his colleagues, they sit after dinner and drink bad wine and smoke cigars. In Adams's estimation, staying with them would waste precious time. Adams was the workhorse of the group, and as his colleagues had assigned him to write up the group's response to issues posed by the British delegation, not only did Adams find himself at work at the writing table from before sunrise until late into the evening, his resentment grew when his colleagues would critique his work. Despite his complaints, one has to wonder if Adams would really have allowed anyone else to take up the composition work. Regardless, it led to innumerable conflicts between Adams and Clay, as some of his other colleagues rallied around the former speaker, who never hesitated to offer up his two cents to the cantankerous diplomat from Massachusetts. Ultimately, though, it was the British that had to be dealt with. The British had come to the negotiating table with the goal of establishing, quote, a neutral Indian buffer zone in the Northwest and demanded major cessions of territory from Maine across to what is now western Minnesota. These were harsh terms, considering that the U.S. Navy had fared well on the high seas and Canada had been invaded by forces under General William Henry Harrison. However, the landscape had changed since the American delegation had gotten their marching orders in January. In April 1814, the Napoleonic Wars had finally come to an end with Napoleon's advocation. Britain's military resources had been tied up in wars against France for the greater part of two decades, and now that highly trained, well-experienced force was freed up to start sending resources to North America. It would take time, of course, but long, drawn-out negotiations would give the British the time they needed. The negotiations to end the Napoleonic Wars, however, would prove to be a detriment for the British in the lesser-priority negotiations occurring at Ghent. Whereas American attentions were completely focused on Ghent, hence why some of their best and brightest leaders had been sent there, British attentions were turned towards the Congress of Vienna and the idea of finally being at peace. The consensus on the British side was that a total peace was in the best interests of the people and the national pocketbook. Thus, despite the weak position of the American delegation, they were able to conclude negotiations on the Treaty of Ghent in December, which established a status quo antebellum, or in layman's terms, reset the clock to how things were before the war. On paper, nothing would change. But in reality, the peace at Ghent marked a new era for the Americans. Against all odds, they had gotten the best deal that they could possibly hope for. And after two wars and two negotiating sessions with the British, as noted by historian John Latimer, quote, The United States took the first step towards the self-confidence that has since been its hallmark. At this point in its history, it is arguable that Henry Clay could be put forward as a good personification of the United States. Sometimes rash and cutting, sometimes rough and tumble, but also cunning and resourceful, charming, certainly self-confident, and thinking of future prospects to the West. It seems rather fitting, then, for Clay to have been on hand for this pivotal point in the young nation's history. However, Clay's time as the personification of America could also arguably be seen as short-lived, especially following the events outside of New Orleans in January 1815. The man whose name would become synonymous with what is typically thought of as the mid-antebellum period was leading American forces to victory in a war that had already been concluded. Next time, we'll see Clay aim for the stars and come up short, in no small part 
thanks to a fellow Westerner, a man who would come to be known to history as Old Hickory. Just a slight programming note. At this point, I'm not sure how many episodes we'll be doing on Clay. I had originally intended to get into Clay's tenure as Secretary of State in this episode, and we're not even close. My plan is to just roll with it and see where we end up. Hopefully it's proving entertaining and informative to you thus far. I'd love to get your two cents on how I'm doing, so please feel free to send any complaints or, dare I hope, compliments to Harrison Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I'm also available on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Harrison Podcast, again, all one word, and on Twitter at Harrison Podcast, don't make me say it three times. Source information and past episodes are available at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com, and the podcast is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. If you're feeling really generous, I greatly appreciate any reviews you may want to leave on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, friends, take care.